Thank you for listening to the Sunday School Teaching Ministry of Pastor Luke Pollock at the Home Church of Lodi, California. You can get more information about our church and about starting a relationship with Jesus Christ at www.thehomechurch.net. Our prayer is that this message from God's Word will renew your heart and mind today. Man, all right. Well, glad you're here this morning. We're going to the book of Romans today, Romans chapter 14. So looking forward to this great chapter. And we're coming close to the end of the book of Romans, but we're not there yet. A lot of great stuff to think about and apply to our life. And so thanks for coming this morning. So in our home, uh, the Pollock home, I'm the person who irons the clothes. Okay, that's my job. I've taken it upon myself to be that guy. Um, so if you see wrinkly clothes in my family, you know the problem. But I, I've, I've tried to make this job uh, very manly. And uh, so I tell my kids that I'm Iron Man. As you can see, I uh, try to... I am Iron Man, okay? Uh, well, this is interesting because... My kids have always seen me ironing the clothes uh, all their life. They've grown up watching Dad iron the clothes. And so one of my sons, when he was very young, he was visiting a friend's house, and he was over their house, and when he was there, the mom was ironing the clothes for their family. And so he kind of was looking at them sideways, and we heard about this later, and he went over to her and said, um... You're not supposed to be ironing. You're the mom. <laughs> in, in his mind, ironing is a man's job. That's what, that's what men do. Now, <laughs> y'all the ladies are like, wow, thank you, Lord. That sounds great. <laughs> uh, we, we all have a family upbringing um, that's different. We all have cultural traditions, and we all have personal tastes, uh, which cause us each one of us to be different from one another. You do things one way in your home, and we do things a little differently in ours. Neither is wrong, just different. And with things like ironing <laughs> the clothes, we can all laugh and be fine with the differences. Although I will say, if you think about it, in some parts of the world, it's possible that an ironing man may be frowned upon. I don't know, but... But on this type of thing, God, in his word, has no direct command on who needs to be ironing the clothes in their family. And so it doesn't matter how you do it. However, it's amazing to me that how small issues like that, or even some that are maybe a little more important than that, but are still secondary issues, um, can sometimes take on a life of their own and become points of such contention and division among people, even Christians. You would think that arguments wouldn't be an issue at all for Jesus-loving people. I mean, you'd think that we get along all the time, always living in blissful harmony and smelling roses together and just always at peace with one another. But shockingly, Christians and churches uh, have had disagreements since the early days. <clears throat> I've heard some people say sometimes, yeah, I wish we could go back to the early days of the church. You know, we read about in the New Testament when things were just simple. <laughs> meeting, people meeting in homes and everything was small and simple and sweet. Like at some point in the history of the church, there was a perfect church somewhere. 
Did you know that pretty much all of the epistles in the New Testament uh, were written to basically handle a problem in the first century church? Paul or Peter or John, whoever it was, was addressing an issue. In 1 Corinthians, it's a lot about a moral issue. Galatians is about a doctrinal issue. Ephesians is about a unity issue. And the list goes on and on, etc., etc. And if you follow the history of the church, you'll see division after division, and sometimes over very small matters and very small things. One example from the 1800s, and I I hesitate to even say this because I don't want to air anybody's dirty laundry, but these guys are long gone, but even that, I don't want to put anyone in a bad light (coughs) in our minds, but I'll say it just for the help because it might be helpful. And because this is one of my heroes, really, too, and that's Charles Spurgeon. Charles Spurgeon and another pastor in England in the 1800s there was by the name of Joseph Parker, both great pastors, large churches, both of them, and mighty preachers of the gospel. And early in their ministries, they, had, they were really good friends and even exchanged pulpits uh, at times. But there was a point where they had a disagreement and and the reports about their disagreement, and it was kind of a misunderstanding with, at, at the beginning, and they did make up, and, but the reports got into the newspapers. And so people were actually, and each church had newspaper uh, writers in the audience every week, taking verbatim what every pastor was saying, and then they would print it the next day in the newspaper. And so they would all, everybody would be pitting these two guys against each other. Thankfully, they didn't really do much fighting, but... Um, but one, at one point, Spurgeon, Charles Spurgeon, accused Joseph Parker of being unspiritual because he attended the theater. He went to the theater. Interestingly enough, Charles Spurgeon smoked cigars, famously, a practice that a lot of people would say, hey, I would condemn that. Now, who was right? Who was wrong? Well, perhaps both of them were wrong in this case. Um, and it's amazing, really, that Christians are world changers. We love the Lord, and we want to do so much for the Lord, and we have good hearts, just like both of these men. They were not uh, at each other's throats or anything like that. They just uh, were trying to live right and trying to do the right thing, but we can get hung up on things that really just don't matter at times. Even us good people, good people with good intentions, we can just get hung up on little things that just don't matter. Of course, there is a time to break fellowship with people. There does come a time for that at certain times. But don't be like this poem here. Believe as I believe, no more, no less, that I am right and no one else. Feel as I feel, think only as I think. Eat what I eat and drink but what I drink. Look as I look, do always as I do. Then and only then will I fellowship with you. (laughs) If that's our life theme, if that's how we're going to go through our Christian life, then we're going to have a very sad existence. With so many people, so many backgrounds, so many walks of life, when Christians come together, unity. Unity is so refreshing. You could be from any, walks of li- any walk of life, any background, but when we come together, there should just be such sweet unity. Maybe that is why God said in the Old Testament how good and pleasant it is for brethren to, to dwell together in unity. It is such a sweet thing. God loves unity. Romans 14 is all about Christians intentionally working toward unity in the midst of our diversity. 
And that's what it takes, work. It takes work. Everybody working together, we all need to work at it. We all need to do our part to make sure that there is unity. So let's look at this chapter, what's commonly called the Christian Liberty chapter. And uh, let's look how we should work toward unity in the church. All right, number one, here's our main point, or one of our first points. And that is, let all kinds of people into your life, because God does the same. Let all kinds of people come into your life, because God does the same. Let's look at verses 1 through 3, Romans 14. Him that is weak in the faith, receive ye, but not to doubtful disputations. We'll explain that in a minute. For one believeth that he may eat all things. Another who is weak eateth herbs. (laughs) That's a good verse, isn't that? (laughs) Anyway, sorry. Let not him that eateth despise him that eateth not. And let not him which eateth not judge him that eateth. For God received him. God hath received him. Now what is God saying here? First he says in verse 1 there that we need to receive each other. We receive them. That is, it literally means to take in as a companion. Take them in. Take them into your life. Let people into your life. Those that are, specifically here he says, weak in the faith. Now, In other words, what Paul is saying here is that there will be people coming into the church who are still learning the doctrines of the, the faith. And that's a very important phrase, weak in the faith meaning the, the body of doctrine, the body of beliefs that's contained in the word of God. And they are weak in that area. They're weak, not, it's not a dig to them, it's just, he's just stating a fact. They're deficient in some way. They're not fully informed, they're not fully aware, their spiritual muscles haven't been exercised as much. They're still learning, they're very sincere, but they're just deficient in one area or another. Now, this does not necessarily mean that they are brand new Christians, brand new believers. They could be, have been a believer a long time. They're just still deficient in some way. An example of that would be the great preacher in the book of Acts named Apollos. Apollos in Acts 18, he was just deficient in certain parts of his doctrine. Um, and then there was a strong Christian couple named Aquila and Priscilla that took him by the side. He was a mighty preacher of the gospel a mighty man who who really was a great orator, but he was humble enough to receive the teaching from Aquila and Priscilla and helped him learn better the doctrines of the faith. And they received him. They didn't bash him for his lack of knowledge or his weakness in the faith. God says, receive these sincere people, but not to doubtful disputations, or not so that you can dispute with them and try to change them by argument. That's not why you accept people. You don't, you're not trying to argue people into the truth. That's to never be our mindset when we're receiving somebody into our life. Paul then gives an example of a hot-button issue here back then. Here's what it, it was. Suppose, and he says about eating herbs and eating, eating and eating not. <clears throat> so their diet. Let me just paint the picture a little bit. Suppose there is a member of the church that comes from a Gentile background. Remember, back then, especially the Jews and the Gentiles both coming to Christ, but they both come from very different walks of life. And so they're coming together in the church. You have Jewish and Gentile believers now trying to get along with each other. Well, suppose there's a member of the church that comes from a Gentile background, and he eats meat uh, no problem without any, ever worrying about where the meat came from. 
But see, in Roman, there's a Roman religious tradition that um, they would take the meat before the market. They would get the meat at the market, and then they would uh, uh, do, uh, they would say, "This is uh, designated to the gods. This 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 is this meat is for the gods. We dedicate it to these demonic idols." Of course, they didn't say demonic idols, but the Gentile believer would walk into that market, and the fact that they have dedicated this meat to the gods didn't bother him. He just goes, buys the meat, takes it home, and he figured in his mind, I really don't care what they did to the meat. It's fine. I can eat this meat. But now suppose there's another believer sitting in there who, from a Jewish background, or they could be from a Gentile background, who is very sensitive about where the meat comes from. It would bother his conscience too much if he were to eat that meat that was dedicated to these demonic idols. In his opinion, the only safe way to live in this Roman environment is to remain holy and eat only vegetables because you never know where that meat came from. So God says to the person who eats the meat, he says, receive the person who doesn't eat the meat. Receive him, but don't debate with him about this. Now you can kind of imagine the scenario. You know, Festus, the Greek, he just came out of the market downtown, and he walks out of the meat market. He's got a bunch of, uh, he's at Trader Joe's, you know, and so he's got a bunch of meat in his basket, and he rolls out, and, uh, and here comes Boaz walking up, and Boaz says, hey, Festus, how you doing? I saw you at church on Sunday. Yeah, I saw you at church on Sunday. So he got a Jewish and a Gentile guy, and uh, Festus is there with all his meat, and he says, you know, I just bought this meat. Boaz, you, you, why don't you bring the family over for dinner tonight? We're going to have a we're going to have pork, we're going to have all this food, it's going to be so good, why don't you come over? Boaz looks in, his, looks in the cart there, sees all that meat and says, um, in his mind he's thinking, how dare you eat that disgusting demonic meat? And I am so sickened that you as a Christian would do something like this. And so Boaz gets angry and, uh, and judgy. Uh, toward Festus, and Festus looks back at this response, and he gets angry back at Boaz. And so now you've got an issue, and that's why in verse number three, let's look at what he says. He says, don't judge the guy for having a low standard, in your head, a low standard, and don't despise the other guy because he has a high standard. Don't get angry at him because he has a high standard, what we would call a high standard. In fact, in verse 2, Paul says that the person who has the, what we would call, high standard is, of not eating the meat is actually the weak one in this scenario. We would say, well, wait, that seems like the other guy would be the, the weak one. No, and he's weak in the faith in the sense that he hasn't understood yet that it's okay to eat that meat. God is okay with it. And so in that sense, he's weak in the faith. He's deficient in his understanding of, of what is allowed by God. But here's the point. Don't get all over him. Nobody needs to argue him, with him about this. Don't push him to go against his conscience. If that's what his conscience is telling him, then let him. The truth is, you aren't a better Christian if you eat certain things and not other things. If you think God's more proud of you for sticking to your diet, uh, then you have a weak view of the faith. If you think God is all about diet, then our faith needs to get stronger. We just need to receive people, even if they don't agree with us on issues like this, but not so that you can dispute and argue. And here's the point. Let God change people. Let God change people. All right, number, number two then, as we'll see, is let, that's the next one, is let God be the boss of his people. Let God be the boss of his people. Look at verse four. 
Who art thou that judgest another man's servant? To his own master he standeth or falleth. Yea, he shall be holden up, for God is able to make him stand. What a great way to state this principle. I love that. Do not judge, or who art thou to judge another man's servant? Don't judge another man's servant. In other words, who died and made you boss? (laughs) You know, we can so easily fall into this trap, though. I've seen people so hung up on music, for example. Music people listen to, oh, that music those people listen to, while they refuse to tithe. Or those people are so dogmatic about what a pastor is wearing, that, but they never go out and pass out a gospel tract to anybody or witness to anybody. Now listen, I know you think, we all think, certain things are super important. And it's not wrong. And that's what we're seeing here. It's not wrong to have a, even a strong opinion on things. Uh, God is not saying that this or this is wrong necessarily. But in the context of the local church, we have to learn to major on the majors and minor on the minors. Don't jump on somebody because they don't share your pet little doctrine or opinion. That's just causing disunity and don't cause disunity. You know, many use the statement that's very helpful that's attributed to Augustine and that is in essentials, unity. In non-essentials, liberty. In all things, charity. Let me say it again. In essentials, unity. We all need to be in full agreement. We need to be in perfect agreement on the fact that Jesus died and rose for our sins, that Jesus is God, that, this, that there is only one way to salvation, that it is not through works. And if we, we need to agree on those things. Those are essentials, and we need perfect agreement. But in non-essentials, then liberty. It's okay. Allow for differences of thought. But in all things, charity, all things love. Disagree without being disagreeable. You know, God's the master. Everyone, as he says here in this verse, stands or falls before God. And so give God room to work with people. Give God room to work. If we're always pushing people to do this and pushing people to do that and imposing our thoughts on non-essential matters, God says, listen, back off. Let me deal with people's conscience. Let me deal with their heart. And as they grow, I'll help them. I'll hold them up. That's what he says. I can hold them up. I can help them stand. I can help them. But here's the very important key in all this, and this is number three. Let each person be fully persuaded in their own mind. If we're going to have unity, we have to let each person be fully persuaded, fully persuaded, fully persuaded in their own mind. Verse 5, one man esteemeth one day above another, another esteemeth every day alike. Let every man be fully persuaded in his own mind. So Paul uses another example here, this time not diet, but now days, and he says, uh, if, if some, some, some people put it one day above another, others esteem every day alike. Perhaps some of the Gentile Christians didn't have a problem celebrating their traditional Roman holidays, their Greek holidays. But the Jewish brothers in the Lord would look at that and they just say, hey, those are just days, man. Those are not holidays. Those are not special. And they're not important. And plus, some of them might be pagan. And perhaps some of the Jewish Christians would say, listen, the Sabbath day is still important to continue. We need to do that. And the other holy days in the Old Testament, we need to keep those. 
But the Gentile brothers look at that and say, I don't I mean, God didn't say that we, to, on this day, at this era, we have to follow that. <clears throat> I don't think it's necessary. Scripturally, it's okay to celebrate Old Testament feasts like the Sabbath day or the Passover and all of that. It's fine to do that as long as you do it with Jesus in mind and that he is the fulfillment. Not saying that those things are going to get you to heaven or I have to do those things to go to heaven. But uh, but scripture would would allow you to celebrate those things. And there's nothing wrong with celebrating local holidays. God doesn't have uh, rules on saying, no, you can't do that holiday or that holiday in your local area. The point is, I think we see in the word of God, is just be careful how you celebrate any of these things morally. But the truth is, you aren't a better Christian either way. That's, that issue does not make you a better Christian or make God love you more or make everybody uh, say, oh, this is the guy who we should all be listening to. Following Christ is not all about days. It's funny how days can sometimes be such a sticky issue. Well, missionary Mary Slessor back in the early 1900s, she went to Africa, spent three lonely years in the bush there. But you know, then she, she had no calendar uh, there and oftentimes would get very mixed up on even what day it was. And so uh, it, there were times when she was found having church, <laughs> she would have the church going on a different day than Sunday. Accidentally, she was thinking it was Sunday, but it was actually Monday. And, um, and also they found her, so people said they found her working on Sunday on her roof when it, she thought it was Monday. So no one now, though, is going to look at her and say, how dare you? How dare you have church on Monday? That is, that is, God, is, God is so upset with you, you should have never done that. Come on, let's get over the little things. I mean, we could have church literally any day. It's okay. Um, of course, there's a special day that God talked about, the Lord's Day, he called it, the first day of the week. And so that's the day we've chosen. It's the day we worship. And it's all about Jesus. It's not about a day. We don't worship a day. We worship Jesus, and God wants us to be reasonable here. So here's the key principle. Be fully persuaded in your own mind that you're doing the right thing. This is the principle, and it's extremely important. Be 100% convinced in your own heart that you're doing right. God sees this whole thing as something that's between you and him. You and him. Some things are just a personal conscience issue. One Christian may be able to do these things without feeling it in his conscience that he's doing wrong, but others will feel that this this is not right. So in that case, if you have a bothered conscience, uh, then listen to it. Listen to your conscience, and I would just say strongly, don't go against your conscience. Don't go against your conscience. You may begin, if you go against your conscience, you may, be, you may begin making that conscience hard. If you start going against your conscience too much, your conscience gets hardened and you're not listening to the Lord anymore. But if your conscience doesn't bother you in a matter, then don't worry about the issue. Now, one caution here, and this is what we're going to talk about next week and bring some clarity. It, how it could be wrong, though, if we're doing something that our conscience isn't bothered, but we know it could be bothering other people's conscience, and we're doing it out in front of others, that we should not, we should not flaunt our freedom. 
God makes it very clear here in the later part of this chapter, and we'll talk about that. But the key idea right now is be fully persuaded in your own mind that you're doing the right thing. Now, there are so many examples we could give on something like this, and I just want to bring out a few practical thoughts. There was an old-time American preacher that gave this list. He said, a Christian from the South may be repelled by a swimming party for both men and women, then offend his northern brother by lighting up a cigarette. At an international conclave for missionaries, a woman from the Orient could not wear sandals with a clear conscience. A Christian from Western Canada thought it worldly for a Christian acquaintance to wear a wedding ring. And a woman from Europe thought it almost immoral for a wife to not wear a ring that signaled her status. A man from Denmark was pained to even watch British Bible school students play football or soccer, while the British students shrank from his pipe smoking. (laughs) I mean, it's just d- disagreements across, all, across the board on so many d- issues. The reformers, they disagreed so much about music in the church. Some said they shouldn't have any music. Some said you could have music with instruments. Then others said, no, you shouldn't have any instruments at all. Some said you should just kind of have a chant. Some said, no, you could just worship the Lord freely. God wants that. Everybody's saying all different kinds of things. Uh, our missionary, Joel Matchek, told the story about offending some women in Ukraine. He didn't realize he was going to do this, but you know he's sitting up on the platform as one of the speakers, and he crossed his legs like we like to do, you know, like men like to do, put their legs across like that. And afterwards, a sweet little Christian lady in the church came to him and said, I cannot believe that you would cross your legs right up there in front of the whole church. <laughs> and he, he, he learned, like, what are you talking about, you know? And he, she was an immoral issue for her. And it's funny, as, you know, as, as a church, as the home church even, we have good preachers. Uh, recently, within the past couple years, I invited a preacher. We thought, man, he's a good preacher. We've seen him preaching at different churches, and we'd like to invite him to come and preach here at the home church. But one of the issues was that we have drums in our church, and that he wasn't. He wasn't uh, kosher with that. And so we were too liberal for him. Uh, But then you see some people who won't fellowship with the home church because we're too conservative. (laughs) I don't know which one we are. We're just trying to follow God. We're just trying to follow the word of God. And if you've been around certain Christian circles in the American church for a while, you won't be surprised by this list I'm about to give. But if you haven't been around Christian circles, then this might shock you. But here are a few of the divisive issues among Christians throughout the years. Drums in the church, the name of the church, how women dress, how men dress, length of the hair, makeup for women, tattoos and piercings, movie theaters, TV or no TV, radio or no radio, hymns or choruses, dancing, drinking, tobacco, card playing, sports, days to meet, celebrating holidays, Christmas, Easter, Halloween, all those things. Now, there's, the list goes on. Now, we might have strong opinions about those things. And I do. I have certain opinions about those things, personally. And I think, but I, but I think what we need to remember is that these issues fall under this phrase. Let every man be fully persuaded in his own mind. You and your own heart need to be fully persuaded on each one of those things. And I think you, you should have an opinion, but it's your opinion and it's yours before the Lord. And it's, your con- it's a conscience issue. Don't, we don't make a big deal about it with other people. Now, quick caution here, we're not talking about clear moral commands in Scripture, okay? We're not talking about the Ten Commandments, for example. We, don't, we never lie, we don't steal, we don't commit adultery, and on and on and on. That's, those are clear-cut, there's no, there's no debate on those. But another clarification here as well. 
As a church, we might set guidelines for certain things, like uh, dress code on the platform or certain rules for employees and things like that. But those requirements that we set as a church is, are based on preferences. They're based on preferences. We aren't saying that you have to do these things for people to be a good Christian. But as a church, we have to draw the line somewhere. <laughs> and so we have to kind of make a stand as in that way. <clears throat> but in those gray areas in your personal life, when you don't have a clear Bible verse, that God's saying something, then follow your conscience. Can I plead with you, please? to follow your conscience. Be fully persuaded in your own mind. Go to the Lord, ask the Lord, Lord, that's why I remember I, I heard Charles Stanley who passed away here recently. Uh, I heard one of the things he, he continually reminded his family and his children was uh, make sh- pray about it, pray about it, pray about everything, pray about it. Well, I wanna do this, well pray about it, pray about it. That's a, that's a great, that's a great, great thought. Now, what is the key? What's the key truth in all of this to work in our relationships that will help work in our relationships with one another? Number four, and that is this. Let the Lordship of Christ lead to unity. This is the key truth here in all of this that will make all this work. Let the Lordship of Christ lead to unity. Now, we see, what we're about to see is in these next few verses is we're going to see the word Lord nine times. And let's see how Lordship answers this whole issue. Remember, the word Lord means master. So let's look at verse 6. He that regardeth the day, regardeth it unto the Lord. And he that regardeth not the day, to the Lord, he doth not regard it. He that eateth, eateth not, or eateth to the Lord, for he giveth God thanks. And he that eateth not, to the Lord, he eateth not, and giveth God thanks. Notice what the point here is, whatever you decide to do on these non-essential issues, like your diet or the day's, do it unto the Lord. Do it unto the Lord. If you can't do something unto the Lord, then don't do it. If you can pray and give God thanks before you do something without hurting your conscience, then you're fine. Do it. Why? Verse 7, for none of us liveth to himself, and no man dieth to himself. For whether we live, we live unto the Lord. And whether we die, we die unto the Lord. Whether we live, therefore, or die, we are the Lord's. For to this end, Christ both died and rose and revived, that he might be Lord both of the dead and the living. Paul appeals here now to the truths that he taught earlier in Romans. The fact that Jesus died and rose not only makes him the Savior, he makes him your Savior, he makes him your Lord as well. He is now the master of your life. He has you. You've given yourself to him. You've asked him to come into your life. So he is now your Lord. And that's what these verses are saying. We no longer have control of our life and we no longer have control of our death. It's all in his hands. It's all in his hands. Whether in life or in death, it's about following our master. But how does that lordship of Christ, making him Lord, answer the unity question? Well, as we saw earlier, if Jesus is my Lord, and I answer to him and him alone, and if my friend is a Christian, then Jesus is his Lord also. Therefore, he answers to God and God alone, and not to me. So let go. I never died and rose again for my friend. That's what this is saying. Jesus died. Jesus rose again to purchase him. I did not die for him. I did not rise again from the dead. I have no hold on anybody else's life. But Jesus did and Jesus does. 
There's an illustration of this in the Bible. It's a sweet little illustration, and it's with Peter, the, the disciple. I'm thankful for Peter. He, you know, he makes me not feel so bad. <laughs> We're always learning what not to do from Peter. I appreciate him. But there's one story that pertains to this issue, and that's after Jesus told Peter, Peter, feed my lambs. This is Jesus already risen, and he told him, do you love me? And Peter said, I love you. He had the whole interchange, and then he said, feed my lambs, feed my lambs. And, and he also told Peter there that you're going to face some troubling days ahead, Peter. You're going to be carried where you don't want to be carried. Things are going to be hard for you. And then we see this little passage here in John 21. Look what happens. Then Peter, turning about, that means turning around, seeth the disciple whom Jesus loved following. Now that's John, which also leaned on his breast at supper and said, Lord, which is he that betrayeth thee? He's, he's saying... He, he turned around and saw John, the other disciple, following. In verse 21, Peter, seeing him, saith to Jesus, Lord, what shall this man do? What about this guy? You told me all these things about me, Jesus, uh, that they're going to happen to me. Well, what about John? <laughs> What's going to happen to him? And look at verse 22. Jesus saith unto him, If I will that he tarry till I come, what is that to thee? <laughs> Follow thou me. There's the statement that some of us need to hear. What is that to thee? Follow me. Just follow me. Don't worry about what he's doing. Don't worry about their doing, what they're doing, what Jesus is going to do with them. You, follow me. Just follow me. Stop worrying about other people. Put your head down and follow Jesus. Lordship is the key to unity. Make him your Lord. Follow him. He's your Lord. Do what he says. Do it in a good conscience. And don't worry about what the guy next to you is doing. And that's why the next point is so important. Verse 5. Let each of us be ready to give an account. Let each of us be ready to give an account. Here's the, here's the deal. We're following the Lord and one day we're going to answer for everything we did. And he's going to answer for everything he did. And he's going to answer for everything he did. But, but on that day they won't be with me. Verse 10, but why dost thou judge thy brother? Or why dost thou set it not thy brother? For we shall all stand before the judgment seat of Christ. For it is written, as I live, saith the Lord, every knee shall bow to me, and every tongue shall confess to God. So then, every one of us shall give account of himself to God. I want to take that last verse, verse 12 there, and I want to take it slowly and think about it for just a minute. Look at every phrase, every word there. Every one of us, he says. Every one of us. No one will escape. Every one of us. No one will escape the day of judgment. Not one person. So make him Lord now, or admit that he is Lord later. But either way, every knee bows and every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord. That he is Lord. And then the next word, shall. Every one of us shall. It's non-negotiable. It's going to happen. You and I are going to stand before Jesus one day, our Savior and our Lord. And then he said, shall give an account. The unbeliever, the unbeliever will bow his knee at the great white throne judgment and give an account of his sins. The believer that Paul is talking about right now will bow at a different place, a different judgment seat, and here it's called the judgment seat of Christ. It's the bema. And it's similar to what they would have at the end of the Olympic Games. Uh, you 
you run in a race and at the end you stand before the bema where you get, get rewards or you don't get rewarded based on uh, what you did in the race. And that's what's going to happen for the believer. That judgment seat of Christ is not about going to heaven or going to hell. That's already been settled. That's already been sealed. That's taken care of if you've trusted in Jesus Christ. You're on your way to heaven. But this judgment seat of Christ is about our works and how, what we did on this earth. It's about the motives. It's about the things that we said we were doing for the Lord, but what, how were we re- what were we really doing them for? And did we follow the Lord like we should? It, you know, to whom much is given, much is required. If the Lord's given you much, you need to be using your much for the Lord. And so that day we will give an account. And then it says, of himself. Every person will answer for his or herself. God is not uh, going to ask you, uh, could you please give me an account for the other people in the church that you sat next to? Uh, Could you please give me, tell me all the bad things they did and report to me? No, you're not going to have anybody else there with you. You're not going to report on anybody else. We're all going to report just for us of himself. And then look at that last part, to God. Now, I want to real quick notice that this is a statement of deity. There's a statement of deity in here. Paul calls, he earlier talked about the judgment seat of Christ, that is Jesus. And then he says, we all stand before God. He calls Jesus God. Jesus is God, and he is going to be the God that is standing right there, or sitting there as we stand before him. The point is, you will not answer to anyone other than Jesus. That's it. You and Jesus on that day. The cert, the, just like you won't be uh, giving an account for the per- person next to you, they won't be giving an account for you. They won't be judging you. They won't be sitting there on that day saying, how did you live your life? The famous pastor that you like listening to on TV or radio or podcast or whatever, guess what? He's not going to be there on the judgment day. He's not going to be the one saying whether you did right or you did wrong in certain, in certain areas. It's Jesus. Your mom will not be there judging you. <laughs> Your friends and neighbors will not be there judging you. Just you. Just you and Jesus. That's it. Paul wants us to be very clear here on the lordship issue. Be so focused on pleasing Jesus. Be so focused on him as Lord, as doing what he would want you to do, that we're too busy to judge other people. And not concerned about who might be judging me. Who cares? It's between you and Jesus. So make sure whatever you do right now is for him and approved by him. Diversity is inevitable. Diversity, we all come from different walks of life and made different choices in life. Diversity within the body of Christ, it's a beautiful thing actually. But God wants us to put all of our effort in that diversity into unity. And get, making sure we get along. We all have to do our part and not create division. I kind of like this story, and I end with this from the book One Inch from the Fence by Wes Siegler. He writes this, listen. I have spent long hours in the hospital intensive care room, watching with anguished people, listening to urgent questions. Will my husband make it? Will my child walk again? How do you live without your companion of 30 years? The intensive care waiting room is different from any other place in the world. And the people who wait are different. They can't do enough for each other. No one is rude. The distinctions of race and class melt away. A person is a father first and a black man second. The garbage man loves his wife as much as the university professor loves his. And everyone understands this. 
Each person pulls for everyone else. In the intensive care waiting room, the world changes. Vanity and pretense vanish. The universe is focused on the doctor's next report. If only it will show improvement. Everyone knows that loving someone else is what life is all about. Friends, let me just remind us, we are living right now in an intensive care situation in the world. This is, there is just no time for Christians to make big issues out of small things. It, re- it just really isn't. This world, this is crazy, crazy world we live in. And it is intense. And I will say over the years that even on this, all this stuff we're talking about here, and I've, you know, I've heard preachers talk about this for all my life, but I felt a shift in the, in the right direction a little bit on this. And a lot of Christians just kind of putting some of those little issues on the back burner, maybe because that we all sense the world is getting such, to be such a dark place. And it feels, you know, maybe, maybe because it's just the immorality is so rampant that we know that we have to stick together. We have to, we have to do our part to fight against the enemy and these little things are kind of shrinking in the background. Kind of reminds me of like September 11th or something like that. You know, when the enemy's coming in strong, everybody bands together. So Christians, keep, keep doing that. Let's, let's not make a big issue out of small things. Even those long-standing doctrinal issues that we've debated about, kind of we just let those, let those just be, let every man be fully persuaded in his own mind. We need to stand together against a, a larger enemy. I hope that's true. I hope that's true. Could you all bow your heads and close your eyes? Thank you, everybody, for listening this morning. Thank you for um, just hearing me out. I know this is, it's, we're all trying to figure all out what our, where we are and uh, what the Lord wants for us. But I think the, the key issue here is for each of us to be fully persuaded in our own mind. Make sure that you're following your conscience, that Holy Spirit-informed uh, conscience. As he is speaking to us, may we follow him and make him Lord of every area of our life. Lord, we trust you. We hope you enjoyed listening to the preaching and teaching from God's Word today. You can get more information about our church and about starting a relationship with Jesus Christ at www.thehomechurch.net. From all of us here at The Home Church in Lodi, California, thank you for joining us.